0: So, how's it been going, Laura?
1: I have a lot less food in my fridge, (laughs) mostly just less food.
0: Yeah. So I guess some background here. Um, Laura's been able to swing the work from home a little bit more lately, um, which means that we have actually been able to do work in the same physical location, um, which is making for all kinds of fun. It's basically like a it's like a little hangout. It's like a play date. It is. Basically. It is. We spent
1: all day today before this before recording this episode on my front porch, which unfortunately no longer smells like chocolate, uh-huh. but that's okay.
0: Yeah, no, it's been good. I mean, I would say that I am way less productive so far. Really? Because um, I'm, I'm
1: doing very well. I know
0: because the thing of it is, is I and if anyone is uh, who listens to this is like one of those people who like used to work in an office with me, you will understand uh, where this is coming from. But I really missed having someone to like chat at during the workday. Yeah. And having that person again suddenly I'm like singing and like shouting things. You and okay,
1: so Eric has been <laughs> singing the same school of rock song yeah. for three weeks. But the legend all the rant
0: you know, like that one. It was, you know, like where you kind of really hit the falsetto really nicely. Yep. Yes. Um, I
1: will never understand that you sing constantly when you're working, but you will not sing in the car. No, no, no. Not on road trips. There's a
0: time and a place. Um,
1: (laughs) And it's not the car? (laughs)
0: No. Um, No, but it's been good. I would say we're not sick of it yet. It's been, this is like day three of actually being able to be in the room with each other, which I would say is good for like problem solving. Like something comes up, we can like, hey, quick, like confer with a colleague about it. But like um, every other time.
1: It also means that none of my leftovers go bad. Yeah. Which no, I really of, appreciate.
0: Yeah. It's, um, I don't know. I would say it's going really well for me. Yeah. Might, <laughs>
1: like, With uh, the singing and the not working. And, yeah. Nice. Yeah.
0: No, it's good. That's um, key. Yeah, things are good. Um, <sighs> I suppose we should like do it. We get to record like during the workday now, which is nice. Yeah. Um, a little earlier. Yeah,
1: so. And, uh, you know, like. We were just sitting in the same room and like talking about this episode and now we actually get to do it. It's not like I'm not typing you my thoughts anymore, (laughs) which is neat. Yeah. Um, But anyway.
0: Anyway, perhaps now is the moment at which it would be appropriate to say welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. You know, the other day, um, my mom, who's like, you know, coming out here to help me with wedding stuff soon, she said, when do I get to meet Hello, Laura? <gasps> she,
1: I'm <laughs> but, so charmed.
0: Yeah, she refers to you as, as Hello, Laura. Um, I'm charmed. Anyway, today is... Um, the 11th. June 11th. Um, we've got a pretty interesting, I hope, show for you today about a variety of things. Um, before we get to any of that, though, how about the it's new month, so how about the basic rundown?
1: Yeah, we should have your query show coming to you this week, followed by your first pages and then a third special episode. We don't know what it's going to be yet, but I <laughs> promise it's going to be fun. Um, so if you're not a Patreon subscriber, make sure you get in there. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got some fun stuff coming this month, specifically in addition to those three episodes, we have put a date on the calendar for our publishing oh, D&D episode, <laughs> which will be available on Patreon. So we're recording it in like two weeks.
0: Intern Kevin rides again.
1: Intern Kevin rides be, for the first time. It's gonna
0: be so good. I'm very, very excited. I've never even played D&D before.
1: No, you haven't.
0: So I'm gonna have to like learn how to play. on Yeah, the fly. I've been
1: talking with my dm and he's got like the story all planned out and it'll be it'll, yeah it'll be really good fun yeah. so anyway that's coming make sure you're signed up so you can get it because i promise there will be laughs, <laughs> um is I, there
0: is there a possibility to get really mad while yes. playing d and oh yes all right
1: good um so troy who is our uh dm who you will all meet Um, He has these dice that roll spectacularly all the time. They're red. Mm -hmm. And he does this like evil laugh when something (laughs) terrible happens because he rolls spectacularly. Um, And then everybody gets really mad and we say the swear words.
0: Am I going to get in a fist fight with Troy? I've never met Troy. No,
1: he's very tall. Mm, Like he's very brawny.
0: Man. Okay. He is
1: Norwegian though and you're Swedish. So you might have to. So
0: there's deep seated enmity across many generations is what you're saying. might
1: have to be in a fight yeah anyway yeah Yeah. so it'll be fun i'm really excited but more importantly eric something i've been keeping from you as you said across from me all day long and it is this bats bats Bats. what do we got tell me like not i know i know not baseball bats because you went to a baseball game i
0: did go to a baseball game yesterday. your most favorite thing and real quick on that we (laughs) i found a pair a father-son pair Wearing matching jerseys, and the dad's his jersey said "father," and the kid's jersey said "son." So, like every time I come on here and make a baseball book joke, know that they're all actually real, and it's like all <laughs> happening. Like, in were they twins the
1: jerseys that had yeah. father yeah. and son they on were the like back? Yeah, they like custom
0: Minnesota mm. Twins jerseys. Father and son, just dad and because like the real players at the baseball game. Is that generational drama?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I spent $90 on a Saints, which is our uh, minor league team, Mm -hmm. a Saints jersey because I went for Stranger Things night. (laughs) And they had jerseys that were upside down. Like you were in the upside down. So all the font is upside down. So I bought one of those because I just like, I don't know, I had had two very large beers and I thought it was a great idea. It was a great idea. And now I just have this like... Mm-hmm. gigantic baseball <laughs> jersey that says Saints upside down and backwards. <laughs>
0: that's incredible. I actually yeah. want one of those. Yeah.
1: yeah, I'll show it to you. I'll show it to you when we're done with this episode. Yeah. But anyway, back to the good bats. Mm-hmm. Um, I just found out that in Portugal, there are these two libraries and they're both from like the 1700s mm-hmm. where the, the windows are open, right? And you think that like a library that's that old, yeah. right? Would, you know, be very tightly controlled in terms of climate for all of the books and whatever. You just whatever. heard a
0: picture of being kind of musty, you know, yeah. like tight windows, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, the librarians in this specific set of libraries have this job, which actually, so like I, do you often feel like really sad that you didn't become a librarian? Yeah. Because I do that all the time too, but this actually helps me feel good about my life choices Okay. because the librarians there are essentially like zookeepers um so what they do is every night they lay this like animal skin fabric over all of the tables and all of the chairs.
0: Oh my god. Every night. Uh-huh.
1: And then they leave and then during the night bats come in through the open windows and theoretically just like eat all of the bugs that could harm the books. What? But it seems like like you know inclement weather and like bat guano would probably hurt the books just as much. Anyway, so in the morning when the bats are gone Uh because they left to, like, go get water or something. I'm not sure if they actually sleep there. Who knows? Um, Then the librarians come in and instead of, like, shelving books or, like, you know, doing card catalogs or whatever. I know people don't do that anymore. But you know what I mean? Right. They, like, clean up the bat shit (laughs) all over the floor. Like, that's their job as librarians for the last 200 years.
0: I just can't believe that... Like, who came up with this? You know, this is one of those things where, like, I feel like an accident happened and then, like, the employee... Like thought for sure he was gonna get fired he like came in and like well shit I let all the bats into the library and you know, I'm screwed <laughs> and it like turns out it's like his boss it's like, charming oh, it, his boss like opens up the first book and like it's not ruined and it's in fact free of bugs because apparently there's like a bug problem in this library he like, he like gets promoted or something for accidentally letting the bats in and now he's like the king zookeeper of all of Portugal or something <laughs> the um, this king is,
1: zookeeper of this... all of Portugal
0: <laughs> no one take this this is my new screenplay <laughs> Um, um,
1: the best part about this story <clears throat> is that the animal skins that they use to cover like all of the furnishings are from uh animal skins from Imperial Russia. Mm-hmm. So like they use these like fancy antique Russia animal skins hmm. that are just, you know, after 250 years, just covered in batshit. Um wow. I don't know. I'm just I'm I'm charmed.
0: This is actually an open call too. I wanna hear about any other just insane library shit going on. Like, yeah. whatever. So if you happen to know of anything like this or anything else that were, like, some libraries just doing some crazy thing to, like, keep the books alive yeah. in the manner of their please uh, choosing, please send it to us. We want to, we'll, like, I don't know, we'll tweet it out or feature it or something. But yeah. this is, like, I don't it, know.
1: Except for sending me links about the <laughs> Library of Alexandria because I am constantly <laughs> sad about that. Yeah. I'm always oh, well. sad about Alexandria. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. So that was just my little thing. I saw it and I've been like sitting on it all day and I just like haven't told you because I was like, we're going to record Eric hearing about me talking about bat guano.
0: It's, I just can't, I mean, what, how does the bat guano not ruin the books more than getting rid of the bugs?
1: I don't know. Maybe most of the books are not paper. Maybe most of the books are like, you know, like parchment or something. Hmm. I don't know. Like, who knows?
0: Don't we have a better way of killing bugs?
1: <sighs> I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. But you know what? The bats are charming. It's kind of like that um, that bridge in Austin where like <laughs> every night at sunset, like three million bats come fly out and around and it's like this yeah. big tourist thing, but it smells yeah. horrible and it's just like a million bats living under a freeway. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maybe it's like that. It's like
0: my nightmares. Yeah. This is, <laughs> this is good.
1: <laughs> anyway, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> So So we uh, we talked a little bit last week about Book Expo or as we um, are rebels and are calling it Book Expo America Mm -hmm. because they dropped the America. Mm -hmm. Um, So it turns out that in an address uh, in an address during Book Expo, Len Riggio, who is the chairman of Barnes and Noble, gave this big speech, right, where he was mostly talking about how like he, uh, he about like. The American Booksellers Association and like indie bookstores and about how like it's actually a good thing and we don't want to put you out of business. Ha 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 ha. Right. Like if you exist, then people will still come to us kind of thing. Yeah. But he said something really interesting kind of at the end of his speech. Um, And he was talking about how the rising price of books, like actual physical copies of books, are an impediment to like how many people are reading yeah um and so the and specifically actual, which yeah. kind of people though yeah so so the the exact quote for him um is today the average paperback costs two and a half times the minimum wage when I started it was one half the minimum wage and then you know he keeps talking or whatever um and so like specifically he's talking about how the rising price of books are an impediment to increasing the number of poor readers
0: yeah and then by like proxy the Just number of readers in general. Like he's kind of bemoaning book sales in general. And he's saying that the problem here is that the books are now far too expensive in relation to the minimum wage. And
1: it's worth mentioning here that those figures are incorrect. (laughs) We got
0: got like one of those like econ takedowns.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the economics takedowns from from somebody else post this address. But so even though the numbers are wrong and it turns out that like books haven't increased, you know, fourfold with regards to the minimum wage, like, it brings an interesting idea here, because I think it's, I think both of us would agree that, yes, indeed, the cost of books are very high, particularly, you know, for people who are, um, who are living in poverty, like, Spending $20 on a brand new book, like, that's a lot of money.
0: And, like, and yes, absolutely. And often it's way more than 20 for, like, a hardcover. So setting his, you know, his bad math aside, you know, like we said, it kind of, you know, by placing these two things next to each other, he sort of does a poor job of, um, you know, talking about, you know, both the minimum wage and the cost of paperbacks, especially in relation to each other, as um, this Thad McElroy, you know, article, um, you know, discusses. But his general, like, His eventual conclusion is something that I think is worth examining, which is this idea that, you know, the book is too expensive for poor consumers. And I think that most people, you you and me, you know, we were kind of talking about it, and it seems like we agree that that's true, right? Like, in a lot of ways, and as as you think about publishing in general, it is too expensive for poor people, whether it's people trying to get into the industry, whether it's creators, you know, trying to find a footing by getting paid for their writing – And here on the consumer end, you know, people actually trying to purchase the product that's created. But what he does when he places these things next to each other, and especially given his position as someone in a leadership spot at Barnes and Noble, right? Like you can sort of see what he's arguing, which is books should be cheaper. You know, we should be able to price these much lower so that we can sell more of them to more people.
1: Like how Amazon does.
0: Exactly. And what it ends up doing is. It's, I feel like it just solves the problem the wrong way. You know, if the if um, the minimum wage had grown, you know, with the rate of, you know, labor productivity, it would be well over $19, which suggests that, um, you know, labor is being undervalued, all right? So, like, really the problem is not that the books are too expensive on a broad scale, it's that the people, it's that the minimum wage is too low, you know? And to get from there and then to say, actually, the problem is that we're valuing the labor too much, we're taking the product and we're, Um the
1: product is too expensive.
0: It's it just seems to me like it's the sort of thing that is just going to exacerbate (laughs) like people. I mean, it already has. Like a big problem in publishing, like one of the things Amazon has done is it's convinced the world that a book should only you should only have to pay a few dollars for a book, right? And it's made it something, you know, and it's that has wreaked havoc throughout publishing. Like it's made it's changed everything. It's devalued the product in a way that I think is has really been hard on publishers. And um, I guess you know, that wouldn't be such a big thing. I mean, no one here is like crying on behalf of, you know, big giant, you know, publishing corporations, or, you know, any of these, or even like the CEO of Barnes and Noble or anything, but like, um, that cost cutting, you know, the thing to make up for that it never, it always happens with the labor, right? Like, it's always ends up being something, you know, a brunt that um, ends up getting, you know, carried by The people with the most to lose, right? The people with the slimmest margins. Who are the writers? Who are the writers? Who are and like within the industry itself? um, Who are the you know if this is you know suddenly salaries can't go up? Suddenly you know it's that kind of stuff. That's how they trim it. And
1: yeah, the arguing for a devaluation of a product, like of the product in an industry that is already like horribly unkind to its creators and to the people actually doing the labor. Yeah. Um, and already keeping a lot of people who are in poverty out of it yeah. is just ridiculous to me, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we've we've been having conversations for quite a while privately about what it means to be an agent in the 21st century, and I think a really big part of that is being an agent not just for people who are like hoping to break into publishing and are kind of just like trying to do that in spite of everything else they have in their life. As like
0: a side project.
1: As a side project. But what it what being an agent in the twenty first century is is like navigating your client's socioeconomic status when the work that they do as writers is incredibly important to their daily survival.
0: Yeah. No, I mean it's one of those things where um you know, I think, you know, that idea that, like, you know, amidst all else that writers have going on, right? Because, like, this, the now the blanket assumption, the industry logic is that you, know, you can't actually make a full-time career as a book writer, right? Like, it's just not something that most people do. You have to work other jobs. You have to do these things because publishing is slow, and you have to do all this labor up front, and when you finally get paid, it won't be enough. It's all these things. And publishing has sort of weaved in this narrative that basically says... Um, You know, well, that's just how, you know, that they basically are just saying that's how it is, right? Like, this is not meant to be something we're paying you in any kind of way that will work as a living, you know? And as you're saying here, and I'm interested in some of, you know, the experiences you've had and how it's kind of changed your thinking on certain things. That isn't actually true of a lot of, you know, writers that are actually trying to break in, you know? Sometimes writers actually do rely on the money from the book industry and that is something i think the book industry really doesn't grapple with at all as basic as it seems
1: i mean take into consideration you know a disabled writer right who is able to you know sit or lay down at home and craft a narrative that will hopefully net them some money but because that's a lot of the times like writing a novel is done on your own terms when you're feeling good and when you're feeling healthy and when you have all these spoons, right? Like that is something that's available to somebody who could not go to a job for 40 hours a week, you know, eight hours for five days in a row, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a lot of reasons why publishing should really matter, like should be available to people that are, you know, not – living that normal you know nine to five type life and or can't for whatever reason
0: it should be available to people who are not necessarily you know totally living luxuriantly and stably you know through other income sources correct because right now it's really tough to not be and so here's my question to you laura yes you, you know i've heard you talk about this a bunch of times in private conversation we've sort of danced around on the show before do you ever feel that as an agent that your tactics as in your your strategy your approach to either selling a book or managing a writer's career do you ever feel that it changes or your book logic changes with when the socioeconomic status of one the writer you're thinking about changes with it like when if for instance do you treat or do you think through the the career of a writer of someone who is maybe you know in poverty the same way you think about you know the career of or the book of a writer who is much more you know living much more stably.
1: It's one hundred percent different.
0: Okay, talk about that.
1: Um, so as as an agent, like you are constantly considering and maneuvering like their career, right? Uh-huh. It's not just I'm making this sale now. It's I'm making this sale now, so I can make that sale, so that they can do get into this space, so that they can then write this other thing. You there's know, a big like strategy. there's a big strategy behind it, and there's always kind of the idea of like, okay, there's your debut book, and then if your your second book needs to be, you know, if you're writing these two different types of books and you want to go from one to the other, like it, there's kind of a progression, right? And that's that's kind of what I'm thinking about when it comes to your career, right? Like the luxury to think strategically about the work that you are producing or have already produced mm-hmm. so that it will um, pay off in the long run. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you know, working with a writer who doesn't have, you know, a safety net or like needs this money to live, like a lot of times writers in poverty don't get the luxury of thinking about a career.
0: Yeah. In the same way as one. Yes.
1: In the same way. So like, for example, I've worked with authors where, you know, we kind of like if I'm lucky, we'll have a couple of works that we can just kind of sit on and kind of release and submit strategically. Mm Um, a lot of the time that involves just sitting on something that could feasibly make the money for several, you know, for several years, just like Mm -hmm. sitting on, you know, what could be tens of thousands of dollars, Right. right. For the authors who like literally need a book sale so that they don't need to get a second job.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and you know, like depending on making sure that those, those payments come in, you know, every three, four months every year. Yeah. Like, a lot of the time, I, you know, have submitted those projects in an effort to get them paid so they can keep producing, so they don't have to, like, take another position or take another job. But what that ends up being is it's kind of like, you don't get to save that for later. So it ends up kind of, I don't want to say being a detriment to their career, but it becomes a detriment to the larger plan.
0: Well, it's, I think, yeah, and that's fascinating, because, like, it's, I mean, that kind of maps across financial thinking, you know, in non-publishing ways, too, right? Like, if you're, you know, if you're less stable or if you're poor, you have to think more day by day. You don't get to have, you know, as many big long-term plans, you know? And I just look at, um, like, when we talk about writing advice or career advice, you see this online a lot, whether it's agents tweeting or editors are like anyone who's like sharing publishing career advice, yeah, it's all you ever hear about are things like make sure you find someone who's the right fit. Make sure <laughs> you find, you know, the agent who understands your work. Make sure you find all of, you know, make sure that the perfect, you know, editor and, you know, you find someone who really goes to bat for the things you believe in. All this stuff that is all worthy and very good. But one thing that I feel like never comes up because it's just such a taboo in kind of book discussion is, Find the people who are going to give you the money. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's never that's never a thing you see happening, even though it's kind of understood underneath as like this truth. But that's never how anyone is ever told to think when they're talking about books. And I think that's because it's this extension of hearing, of framing like books as like this sort of non-essential side project of yours. Yeah. You know?
1: Or like, you know, find an agent who won't just get you the biggest deal, but will get you, you know the deal you need if you need the money right now. Right. You know, the goal setting is completely different. Yeah. Right. In terms of like, you know, there are certain times where I really need to make a sale for my, you know, finances. Right. 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 But, you know, the kind of the kind of thinking, you know, with with where this author is going to go and where their projects are going to go. It's like, you know, a lot of the time it's okay. we can take the smaller amount of money right now. Mm hmm. Or we can work a little bit longer and a little bit harder and gamble that somebody else might want to give us more. Yeah. And zero of the times I've had that situation, Eric, have we ever waited?
0: Yeah, because it's money now or maybe money later, and yeah. that's just never that's not a decision that a lot of people are in a position to make and yet publishing seems to want everyone to think about making. Yeah. and I, I think that it's I think that it's a little odd.
1: The longer I work, With authors, um, with, you know, these kind of financial considerations, Mm -hmm. the more I do of like soft agenting rather than like hard submitting. Yeah. Like a lot of the time, you know, I I'm trying to like I'm constantly trying to set up. As many avenues for success as possible. Like, it's, Mm -hmm. I'm never just committing to one path, right? I'm never saying, okay, so you're going to finish this book at this time, and then I'm going to submit it, and then we'll sell it, and then it'll go like this, 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 this. I'm always going, okay, so if you're writing this book right now, and I, Have a phone call or drinks with this editor and I can kind of get them interested in it, that'll keep the line of communication open in case we need to sell it in a hurry. At the same time you know I'm more careful with option clauses and making sure that people are um, only locked into places where I know it's going to give them the money that they need. You know I'm constantly kind of doing the soft pitching and the hey very roughly would you be interested in this (laughs) at some point. You know, rather than here is a book I am selling.
0: Now, so so, some of that is just good agenting. Well, right? sure. What you're describing there is, I think, you know, part of the tricks of the trade, right? Like right. it sounds like you're doing a good job. But one thing that I feel like it's specifically useful here is because it kind of makes things go a little bit faster. You know, it yeah. sort of has this means of, you know, bec- and it feels sort of essential. Like you have to be able to have options because, you know, at some point, it's you're going to just have to get a sale mm-hmm. and you know i don't know i have a lot of clients who um at least you know i work in non-fiction right and so it's a little bit different because in fiction all the labor happens way up front right like people have to write the whole manuscript um at least for you know debuts and stuff obviously you know there are situations you know in, for second and third books where things can get a little different but um you, know, you have to you know you don't necessarily have to write um, the whole book up front in nonfiction, and so what? Ends the
1: idea up, with nonfiction, though, is that they pay you in advance so that you, you can, can afford go, to write you, the rest exactly. of the
0: book, which is interesting. But one thing that happens a lot I've noticed is I work with a few different um, academics. Mm-hmm. I'm th- um, yeah, I'm just like doing a mental count in my list, it's, like three or four, I think. And you know, academics are you know that's not necessarily depending on your spot. That's not necessarily a lucrative <laughs> place to be either. You know what I mean, like adjunct professors or like professors who are trying to find you know a real tenured position or something and a lot of things that the, you know they say is it's, it's less it's not necessarily about the money from the publishing but it's you know i can only be considered for this promotion that i need in order you know from the academic mm. institution i'm at if i have a book deal or if I have, you know, a certain sort of benchmark hit with my writing. And so, you know, one of the things, you know, that I recently navigated with a client was we had this offer from this press and the question was are they going to be able to publish this book in time? For my author to um, be able to use that publication in an application for a promotion, they need so that they could pay for this thing that they had no idea. You know, like they just had, you know, people they had this expense, and it's like they needed it now, and the only way they were going to get it is by getting through this other realm, and like it's the same sort of idea. I mean, it's um, you know slightly different, but you know, the need for money, which is a fundamental need that every person has, you know, here, and it's something that um it just it feels like it's so often pushed aside and I think that's especially true in fiction because there's like I guess like I've always felt that it's just kind of patently absurd that you have to like write a whole novel before anyone looks at it to decide if it's good or not <laughs> you know like I understand that that's obviously yes. a fundamental truth of, that's a fundamental truth of the industry that's not going to change I'm not but actually it's still a lot of labor but, but just on its face like think about that that's absurd right like And you talk about like writers needing, you know, having to decide whether or not to get second or third jobs, like writing a book is a job, like in terms of man hours, you know, I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's and if you're doing it in a professional realm, and if you're then, uh, you know, at a level where you can be compensated for having done it at a professional level, the idea that you would have to go that long without, um, I don't know, like, I've always found that part tricky. And it definitely doesn't play in to helping anyone who might actually need to get paid from their writing, you know?
1: Yeah, that I mean, it, it it I've been thinking about this a lot this week because um Penguin UK has announced that, you know, if you've been seeing Lionel Schreiber mm. like shrieking <laughs> online, it's because she uh, you know, like the human version of the the shrieking eel. Um she's been she's been yelling at Penguin UK for having a goal that, you know, in the next couple of years they're they will be publishing this, you know, authors that will then kind of reflect what society is in the UK. Mm-hmm. So, like, certain number of immigrants, certain number of people, you know, certain abilities and and um, socioeconomic statuses right. and, and, you know, ethnicities. So, um, like, how do you do that as a publisher when the way that the business works, like, keeps – some of those people out
0: yeah no i mean i think that what's interesting about that point is you know those sorts of initiatives you know and like that idea you know like when we see we see this kind of framed always as an editorial acquisitions issue these representational things right Mm -hmm. like it's always well the problem is that editors aren't buying diverse enough books they're not buying from enough different types of backgrounds and that's true but a lot of this is a structural issue that doesn't have actually anything to do with editing yeah or editorial it's decisions finances. it's about it's about just who can actually sustain themselves to actually be a part of this and i find that part to be very under discussed and very um maybe even more pervasive like a great way at least at least for me like a great way if you're really deeply interested in um, you know increasing representation especially um, from, um, you know, poor people or, you know, communities that don't necessarily have just the capital lying around, you know, so that you can go like spend time on, you know, after your strictly one 40 hour job, you know, to go write your book, like, the way to do it is to change the model so that people can actually use it as a means of getting paid for their labor. And it's just not the case right now. And I don't know, I think that, you know, like going back to, you know, this guy wanting to kind of devalue the book. I guess I just game that out in my head and the way that publishers who are already strapped for cash are going to make up for that is they're just they're going to cut advances, they're going to cut you know they they're going to do things that push that saving onto the people they've already decided don't necessarily need to be treated like full on, you know, laborers in the you know in the ecosystem and I don't know that that sort of bothers me you know, that's why that's why I think that he's kind of worth pushing back against a little bit in his thinking
1: so I have a question for you Eric yeah with with nonfiction kind of beyond those academics yeah right so for for all of the other people on your list that are writing nonfiction. Mm-hmm. How would somebody, you know, because like theoretically, you're just selling the book on a proposal and, you know, some sample chapters, right? So it's not just that they need this money to live. It's that they need to this money to live and to finish the book. Yeah. How would that change your strategy if you're working with somebody who like needs the money right now?
0: Well, one thing, I mean, you have to get a little bit more bullish on advances. I mean, one thing that always ends up in, um, you know, publishing discussions um or in contract negotiations and nonfiction is this idea that you're barely even covering the costs to write the book. You know, like I you know, I have this author, for instance, you know, who, you know, his is um he's writing a book, you know, kinda in the Middle East and he has to travel around and that costs money and things like that. And um, you know, in conversation with his publisher, I remember at the start, you know, part of our advanced negotiation involved with the fact that yeah, you're giving him some money. Yeah, you're paying upfront some, but what you're all you're really doing is covering his costs to even write the book at all. It's not as though he is. It's not as though this is a profiting. It's not as though he's like making a ton of money, you know, off of this advance, you know? All you're doing is like, it's like paying simply for someone to show up at work, you know? Yeah. Like you're just covering, rather than actually giving them money beyond that, that they could actually then take home and use for other things. And this and- isn't
1: even just like a salary either, because you're paying them for their travel, but yeah. that money, like, they don't get a cent more until they've already paid that money back to the publisher. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean,. Which we can talk about, you know, like the signing bonuses versus just royalties. Right. Cause there's this idea right. of like, you know, with publishers, you, you know, you can't give a $50,000 advance because we just don't have that money in the budget. Yeah. But like you get that back <laughs> if you do, like if, exactly. if, I mean, of course it's a big if, if the book sells and, you yeah. know, all of that. But, you know, like there are like that. That's not like if you have a successful book and you are a publisher, you will at the end of the year, you know, if all of your books are successful, you will have only profit. Yeah. Right. Like, it's not like you just like gave people money and then they made you money. It's just you're just loaning people money.
0: Yeah. In terms of. Yeah. With regard to author relations. obviously There are other costs for things. Yeah, of course. But no. Yeah, you're exactly right. Like and because. What they're actually saying is, um, you know, it gets at that idea of like earning out, right? Like a publisher doesn't want to pay more than they think they can sell, but they never talk about it that way. They say it like you say, like we don't, like the fallacy of we don't have that in the budget is wrong because it's, um we're talking about an arrangement where for every dollar you're getting 85 cents and the writer is only getting, you know, 15, you know, like something like that. And then from there, if you're lucky, right. And so it's i don't know it's to me it just gets back to that idea then we've talked about this before like who does the publishing industry think is expendable and who does it think of it as actually in the industry and who does it not you know and the people in-house you know some of them are you know treated as um you know inexchangeable or um irreplaceable or things like that but writers are definitely still not one of those people and <laughs> The problem there, if you're interested in things like changing the sorts of books, like if you actually have an editorial concern about what sort of books are getting made is this is where it comes from. And like, you know, one other thing that always ends up happening, you know, in these discussions about, you know, diversity and like initiatives to kind of increase the range of voices is poor people are never brought up. I don't know if you've noticed that, but like it's always in terms of kind of race or, you know, um, sexual orientation, which are all great and we want those, but it's never about it's never about income. It's never about class, you know, and I think that that's, you know, and this obviously ends up, you know, being sort of a microcosm of a much larger American conversation. But, like, you get what I'm saying. But like, the it's,
1: socioeconomic status it, it's, is so inextricably linked to exactly, all of those other exactly. types of marginalization in the it, United States. that, exactly. Like, especially in an industry that is focused right. in New York, that, you know, that is entirely... Necessary as a part of that conversation. Yeah, You know, we um, so in the Twin Cities, I am on the board of a publishing nonprofit that basically puts on these um, five or six like ongoing, like continuing education, like lectures or mm-hmm. panels a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and one that we just had is we had um, one of the publicists or one of the marketing people from Lee and Lowe Books who you might know as a children's publisher, but also as the people who did the diversity baseline survey Um, and about their, you know, it was we were kind of a big part of that was talking about the initiatives of, you know, improving diversity in books and a big way to do that is improve diversity in actual publishing companies um and we kind of went through a bunch of the strategies there because you know this this person was speaking to a bunch of people in in actually like in-house right so the strategies had to do with like you know removing a university requirement for employment like Mm -hmm. a university um degree from from employment requirements which you know is very oftentimes related directly to socioeconomic status oh of
0: course it is and of course it especially is. with regard to who publishers hire from which is like mostly just like new york schools or like ivy leagues places that they can you know those like sort of class signifiers that you know like what makes an ivy league education actually useful is it gets you in the circles with other people who like ivy league educations you know what i mean like it's it has very little to do with what you actually know, you know? And so no, I'm actually, you know, I've never actually considered that, you know, in any kind of real way before, but I might actually be okay with, the removal of you know degree requirements to work in publishing I mean of
1: it's an it's an apprentice based industry exactly, like it doesn't exactly. matter like
0: what technical skills other than just like being a sharp reader you know and having an eye like but those are things that get trained through reading you know Yeah
1: you get trained specifically like that I mean just like being a big reader is not the same like same thing as how you need to read as an acquisitions editor.
0: <laughs> I feel like we've like run into here just like a much bigger conversation. That's, I mean, like, so it's like it's a part of it, and I. But like, I'm like, man, we could talk for like another hour about yeah. who should get hired in publishing based I mean, on what credentials. Just, and yeah,
1: I, I mean, I'm just like, I feel like constantly like agents are on the ground. Yeah. Of course, we're gonna be working with authors who are currently or have been living in poverty, and. A lot of the time, you know, like I feel like everything that I'm doing to get my authors paid is very much a stopgap for one individual. And so I guess, you know, I'm I'm sort of seeing this as, you know, we can we can take our experiences individually of how we have, you know, altered the career path for a specific author because they need to eat now and mm-hmm. not in six months. Yeah. And you know, kind of push on the larger institutions, you know, why, like, why are the, the pay models the way that they are, you know, is, is there any way that we can change this or fix this? Like, does it just have to do with who you can hire and like how you're kind of doing, your your budgets in-house does it have to do with pushing back on Barnes and Noble where the answer is not in fact being more like Amazon but is instead <laughs> yeah. like valuing actual like people and opinions yeah. and thoughts yeah. um, y- you know like there's there's a lot of things I think that we can do but as as agents like besides just kind of being on the ground and and doing this particular work for individuals I think it's worth to talk about it and to kind of draw those connections there
0: yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's sort of a broad conversation. It's an ongoing conversation. But I think it's one that absolutely needs to keep happening. And it sort of underpins all the other structural things we end up talking about in publishing, you know, kind of on an ongoing basis. And I think this kind of lies at the heart of a lot of it.
1: Yeah. I think a lot about what I would be doing with my life if I could have afforded to go to New York City. Right. To work. Right. I mean, like, you would have two Eric Haynes in this room. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's everyone's nightmare. It is
1: everybody's nightmare. But anyway, thank you for um, sticking with us as we kind of navigate the murky waters of like all of the ways that publishing is bad to poor people. Um, But I want to kind of get into a right tip that is actually not at all related. Excellent. Um, And it has to do um, with books that have multiple points of view. Um, And this, this isn't just for, you know, first person books where you've got three different you know heads that we're in, but more of like that that can be a factor. But it's more of like when you have multiple people who you're following, like multiple people who have main plots and storylines within your book. Right? They can be linked. They can be less linked. Um, but one thing that I think that people get lost on when they're writing multiple POV is more like the consideration of who gets what part of the story has to do with who can tell that part of the story better. And it's less mm-hmm. about the actual balance of the story. Yeah. So, like, if you have three points of view and one of those points of view gets 60% of the airtime and the rest get, you know, 25 or 20 each, you know, that is going to tell you, tell the reader a lot about who to care about and who to really trust mm-hmm. as readers. Um. I You know, I just finished Children of Blood and Bone and there's, yeah. you know, there's, the, the one main character and then there's two more POVs and one of them is, you know, you're meant to not necessarily trust that one. And I think because that person has a lot fewer pages where it's in their head, that trust doesn't form. You well, know, it stays it, gone.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really, that's really interesting and good. And he sort of gets at that idea of like, the act of reading is one of empathy, yeah. right? And so the more time you spend in a certain perspective the more you're going to be able to sort of, um, you know, care about that person, you know, you know, from that particular viewpoint, it's going to feel much more easy to empathize. You yeah. Know?
1: And there's also implications in terms of story. Right. You know, if you're following one person for most of the story, like we're going to end that book thinking that the story belonged to them. And that the other people were just there to serve that original character. Mm -hmm. Um, And so really, like, really think about that balance. I know a lot of people use, like, sticky notes or some other, like, technology where they can, you know, color code it and keep track of who's talking when and how and why that is. Um, And this is not at all to say that everybody needs to be equal. You know, all POVs need to be equal. But it does mean that, like, if they're not equal, you should know why. Yeah. So anyway, that's your right tip for the week. Excellent. Um, Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Print Run. Remember to stay tuned for queries this week on Patreon. And we will see you for our regular free episode next Tuesday.
0: Bye. Bye.